0: Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In all successful social and political changes here in the United States and elsewhere, civil disobedience plays a significant role. Bus boycotts, sit-ins, and marches, coordinated with constitutional-based legal challenges, to blatant racially-based restrictions imposed by the white supremacy in the American South were at the core of the civil rights movement of the 1960s and 70s. Our guest in this edition of Radio Curious is attorney Kent Spriggs, the editor of Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers, Reflections from the Deep South, 1964-1980. to 1980. Spriggs compiled the voices of 26 lawyers, black and white, from the South and the North, who began their law practices in the mid-1960s and successfully ended significant aspects of the then-existing racial segregation. They provide context for the civil rights litigation and other basic legal rights as well as how their successes later advanced other movements for social justice. Kent Spriggs, raised in Washington, D.C., went to the Deep South in 1965 after finishing law school in New York. He has been a civil rights lawyer since he arrived there over 50 years ago. Spriggs, now a resident and a former mayor of Tallahassee, Florida, and I visited by phone from his home office on December 4, 2017. We began our visit when I asked him to describe the contributors and some of their stories in Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers.
1: contributors and 71 separate chapters. A number of people wrote more than one chapter. Um, there are a group of 10 chapters that are um, about how people became civil rights lawyers, whether they grew up in the north or the south, and what was the, the pattern in which one uh, ended up choosing that vocation. Uh, there are a group of chapters that I call the tenor of the times, just to give the feel of the times, uh, like one is about mass meetings, demonstrations, and boycotts, things that were very important uh, to the civil rights movement. And then there are a group of chapters which are divided up by the kind of legal issue being raised, um, whether it's school desegregation or employment or public accommodations. Um Then there are a group of chapters that some people seem to find very entertaining about bad things that happen to lawyers. Um, You know, lawyers getting arrested, lawyers getting held in contempt, lawyers getting beat up. Um, So that gives you some sense of the the breadth of uh, subject covered.
0: Kent, who were these lawyers? I
1: I wouldn't say that there's any magic litmus test some people were working for nonprofits like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Other people found ways to um, actually do this work while maintaining a, a private law firm. Uh, one of the big helps for a private law firm being established as civil rights law firms was uh, grants from the NAACP Legal Defense Fund they would adopt certain cases and uh, give a modesty to private lawyers in the South, uh, even when the Legal Defense Fund was not uh, involved with their own lawyers.
0: And you mentioned danger to uh, some of the people who were the lawyers. Can you uh, share some of those stories?
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, that there are a number of stories about lawyers being arrested, uh, lawyers being held in contempt, um, I got beat up, <laughs> so um, I know a, a, another lawyer uh, who had a, a pilot's license in Mississippi uh, was landing his his uh, plane, his little private rented plane, into Neshoba County, or Philadelphia, Mississippi, probably known to your listeners as the place where the three civil rights workers were murdered in the summer of 1964. And he was he was just starting. Descent, and he realized somebody was shooting at him, so he, he pulled up and went to the neighboring county. Um, um, my dear friend David Lipman um, had a the a, a barrel of a gun shoved in his mouth uh, when he was uh, trying to be an election monitor, so a lot of bad things happened to lawyers. I, I mean, I, I really want to hasten to add or that you know, the rate of bad things happening to lawyers was never comparable to what was happening just to rank-and-file black folks who were part of the Civil Rights Movement. I mean, there always was, at least collectively, some bit of privilege for lawyers, even though some bad things did happen to lawyers.
0: Well, what prompted you to become involved in the Civil Rights Movement in the early 60s?
1: I don't know. I I, Somehow... Uh, the scourge of racism it was imprinted on my brain at a very young age because uh, I recite in the book about when I was six years old there was a five-year-old the only black child in our neighborhood He's the son of the living janitor and uh, I found out that he was while I could walk to the neighboring school um because you know Washington D.C. School, D. schools were all segregated, I, I found out he was actually going to have to get on a city bus and ride about twenty minutes down to the Bernie neighborhood to attend the closest black school. And uh, this this kid it was one of my buddies, and he was very shy. And I thought, oh my god, it, it's so unfair that somebody so shy should have to get on a city bus ride. To, School. And that was kind of my first memory of sort of racial consciousness, I guess.
0: Your work in Mississippi included uh, desegregation cases of the schools. Can you describe what the condition of the schools were on the other side of the tracks, using that uh, euphemism, and how they changed as a result of the litigation?
1: Well, it, it, Throughout the Deep South, in that era, all the schools were uh, segregated by law, and so cases were being brought under the 14th Amendment uh, to desegregate the schools. Pretty uniformly, the black schools were in inferior uh, shape. I mean, the whole idea of separate but equal, which had been the rule of the Supreme Court from the turn of the century, was was always imaginary that, that just gave license to, um, you know, desegregate and have inferior facilities for black kids. So what took place in that era was bringing suits against all school systems to desegregate them and turn them into unitary uh, school systems.
0: Well, let's talk about the conditions of the segregated schools.
1: I'll give you a good example. When we brought the school desegregation case against the Oxford Municipal Separate School District, they wanted to shut down the historic black high school and have all the white, have all the black kids go to the historically white schools. That was a really common pattern, but we resisted it before Judge Cady, Uh, Federal judge, and we said, "Look, this is the heart. The school is in the heart of the black community. It's a community facility for you know meetings and other kinds of things. It's the heart of the black community, and we don't want it closed." And pretty amazingly, Judge Katie ruled for us. Well, so all of a sudden, here it was. I guess maybe July, and the school board realized that in the fall term they're going to have a lot of white kids there because they turned the black high school into a middle school. So in, those, in the months or so between the judge's decision and the beginning of the school term, they made extraordinary... Uh, I mean, it, 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 everything was changed at the, at the historically black high school and made it much, much nicer because now white children are going to go there, so it became a value to the white majority.
0: Kent, tell us about the school desegregation case where the judge directed the school superintendent to refer to the petitioners as black people.
1: Yeah, that was Judge Smith. Judge Smith was so great. I love Judge Smith. He's in the Northern District of Mississippi, and the superintendent uh, was, was testifying in a school desegregation case. And every time the superintendent... Uh, would allude to blacks, he would say, you know, and it, part of his Southern accent and part of his probably closet racism, he would sort of say, "nigra." Well, it was getting really, the way he pronounced it was getting really close to a racial epithet. And I noticed that there were murmurs in the crowd uh, from the blacks who had come to watch the, the case. And, and the, the judge was concerned about the murmurs, and I said, Your Honor, I think the the problem is that the witness the way the witness pronounces the the negro sounds a lot like a racial applicant. And Judge Smith said, Good point, counselor, He turned to the superintendent and said, From now on we allude to black people, just use the word black. Well, in in Mississippi in nineteen sixty eight, sixty nine, 69, uh, black was like For a person to allude to an African-American as black was, like, revolutionary. And through the rest of his testimony, the the poor superintendent was kind of gagged on his testimony. It was pretty amusing.
0: And he was in the United States Federal District Court. Right. And there was a clear distinction between the judges in the state courts and in the federal courts. And can you share that with us?
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, some of the judges who were federal district court judges, well, in the Southern District of Mississippi, they were, all three of them were very hostile to civil rights cases. But what was true and what was kind of the ace in the hole for the plaintiff's lawyers was the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which covered Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, that they were... There was always a majority who were strongly supportive of the civil rights claims. So these judges in the Southern District of Mississippi were just routinely uh, overruled and and reversed. So uh, it really was an incredible ace in the hole to have in litigating.
0: Why do you think that was the case for the uh, Court of Appeals in the 5th District, that they were more uh, sympathetic, more attuned to the civil rights cases?
1: I don't know. It's it's um, there's a couple of different things. I mean, some were appointed by Democratic presidents, um, and why they were more sympathetic when some people in the Democratic Party were not sympathetic. I can't really explain that. And not all of them were, but there was always a majority of the Fifth Circuit supportive. And and then there was another group who were actually Republicans and. Republicans, the Republicans were not a viable party in the Deep South in, in the in the '60s, and so what happened? You tended to get sort of, um, I'll I would say, ruling class whites who had a much more relaxed attitude about uh, desegregation than the average uh, white person in,
0: in the Deep South. Uh, Kent, in organizing the school desegregation cases, you describe in the book how the uh, organizing for desegregation of the schools took place in churches. Can you elaborate on that for us?
1: Yeah, normally, um, other than the black public schools, the the largest gathering places for black people were the churches. And uh, throughout the South, uh, church life is is really at at the at the heart of the black community. So it was totally predictable that when large groups of black parents would get together to discuss whether to bring a school desegregation case, that they would meet in churches. I mean, that that was I can't even think of a single time when it wasn't in a church. So.
0: There's a spirit congeniality about the churches.
1: It's not an accident that the dominant uh, civil rights group in the South was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I mean, it came directly from Dr. King's work, and the movement for equal rights was always church-based.
0: In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with attorney Kent Spriggs, who lives and practices law in Tallahassee, Florida. He's the editor of Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers, Reflections from the Deep South, 1964 to 1980. I'm Barry Vogel. Kent Spriggs, let's talk about the employment discrimination cases. Can you describe the legal basis for the school desegregation cases versus the employment cases?
1: You have to look at the, the legal basis for the two kinds of challenges. The employment discrimination was only made actionable by the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which didn't become effective uh, With regard to employment, until uh, a year later in um, July of 1965. Before that, uh, you really couldn't challenge employment issues except uh, with federal law, except uh, in the case of public employees, where you could challenge the 14th Amendment. Now, the school desegregation was all under the 14th Amendment, and there had been uh, litigation. There was litigation like in the 40s and 50s leading up to Brown versus Board of Education, but there had been earlier cases involving higher education uh, and the segregation that was extant in the South. One thing that happened, of course, is that by 1971-72, almost every school system in the country was unitary, but employment discrimination litigation goes on as we speak. i mean there there's still uh, class actions that there's enough discrimination you can have successful employment discrimination um,
0: today. Well, let's talk about the conditions of the segregated working conditions in employment cases.
1: I can give you an example of paper mills uh, throughout oh Mississippi Alabama, Florida um, and I you know, having litigated several of those, I can tell you I can tell you exactly which jobs were the black jobs, which jobs were the white jobs, and it, so the rule was if a job was really dangerous, it would be assigned to the blacks and um, but the other rule was that. Even the most prestigious black job paid less than the least prestigious white job.
0: Kent Spriggs, can you talk about the mill cases where trees were turned into pulp and the dangers involved for the workers?
1: Yeah, I'll give you a good example of a couple of jobs that were assigned to blacks only. Uh, One was called the chipper feeder. it, the chipper feeder leaned over uh, something was breaking up the pulp into chips and if you're, if you're uh, the belt that, that was holding you ever broke you were going to get, you would die very, very quickly. You'd just fall into this thing and get chipped up. Uh, the same was true in the wood yard. Uh, the black jobs in the wood yard were quite dangerous. One, we had testimony about one black man who fell into the debarker drum that that's the drum that tears the um, bark off of, of the the pine trees um, we had a testimony by one guy who worked uh, in the lime kill and he actually showed the judge his forearms his forearms were bleached white because it was inevitable that in the lime kill. Um, some of the line would get on your body, So those were illustrative of the kinds of black-only jobs which were dangerous and obnoxious. And every one of those jobs was paid less than the lowest-paid uh, white job.
0: In the trial of that case, the white workers in the mill, the white journeymen, were favorable witnesses to, the, to your case. Can you tell us about what they said?
1: Yeah, that, not in the original case, but the, in that case, uh, the court order was not obeyed. And when we brought an action to enforce this, um, there were white skilled um, crafts workers who we actually called to the stand, and we said, when Mr. Black came over to the one of these crafts for the very first time, the blacks would go there for a little bit and then they would get thrown back out by management. And we asked the other uh, people in the skilled craft, were they doing a good job? And and a number of them said, yeah, the black guy was really doing a good job. So he actually had a little split between management and the the white workers.
0: And how was that case resolved?
1: He actually, uh, Judge Paul, actually denied the motion to enforce the decree. It was a shameful decision.
0: You have some curious postscripts about that case when a subsequent judge, Judge Middlebrook, stepped down.
1: Yeah, this is a very curious thing. Judge Middlebrook abandoned the federal bench in 1974, went into private practice. After that announcement was made that he was going to be leaving, he had had probably... The vast majority of cases I had in front of him, he had, he had counted me and my clients, and so I, I was. We had a hearing in front of him, and uh, I was walking out with a defense lawyer, and his clerk came up and said, "Hey, uh, come back and uh, the judge wants to see you." And so we both turned around because no lawyer would appear. By himself. I said, No, no, just Mr. Spriggs, not, not you. We kind of looked at each other. This is really strange. So he got back there into the judge's chambers, and his clerk was there standing by his side, and he, he excused the clerk. And so the clerk left. It was just me and the judge. He said, um, I hope I haven't been too hard on you. <laughs> of course, you've been exceedingly hard. And I just tried to be nice and say, Well, I know I'm sure you were just. Call him the lazy or something like that. But he was was very apologetic, and he ended saying, If there's anything I could ever do for you. Well, a couple years later, I was having an attorney fee fight because court award of fees is basically how plaintiffs' lawyers in civil rights cases live. And so I asked the judge if he would make an affidavit. He said, No, I'll I'll come and testify. (laughs) So. Judge Middlebrooks came over to the federal court in Pensacola and testified that I was a good lawyer and and that I was worth whatever he said. I can't remember the amount, but it was generous. It was just one of those curious things where somebody who had never been sympathetic to the Civil Rights cause generally his testimony is very helpful, I think. I mean, the, the, the defense did not cross-examine him at all, which was pretty uh, illustrative of... of uh, he, d- he just didn't want to... It wasn't good strategy for them to go after a, a former federal judge. Somehow, it, it's almost like a form of repentance, I suppose.
0: Ken Spriggs, considering what's going on now at the end of 2017 with President Trump... And the uh, activities that he is uh, fomenting in Washington, how do you see the future of racial equality in the United States? Well,
1: clearly Trump ran on a basically a racist uh, rant. Uh, he's continued that racism. Um, the, the Attorney General of the United States is incredibly racist and is. Moving backwards on civil rights issues, so it's an extraordinary time in which um, those of us who fought for civil rights are having to play a lot of defense. Um, hope that we can uh, stop the backwards slide, but there's a, yeah, it's, it's a really hard time for those who care about racial justice.
0: Well, Kent Spriggs, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask uh, several questions about you. And one of them is about a Eureka or an Aha moment that changed your view of the world, uh, perhaps changed how you um, live the rest of your life.
1: Yeah, I don't really think there's really been an epiphany or a Eureka moment that I can really. Um, put my finger on. Uh, my, my general life path has had a pretty clear trajectory from an early age of being interested in, in questions about race and then going to law school and, and being interested in litigating issues that have to do with race.
0: And what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life?
1: Uh, Oh, I'm still. uh, I'm mostly retired, but uh, my former law partner and I have a large class action uh, against uh, the state of Florida, and um, have a small part in another class action in Charleston uh, against a steel mill. So I I keep a hand in, and and what's really exciting to me these days is I'm working as the the chair of the sheriff's committee. on pretrial detention, and we're dealing with two issues. One, reducing the role of money bail uh, because basically it's just uh, keeping people in jail because they're poor. And the other is to try to uh, get a lot of the <clears throat> folks who are actually suffering mental illness to get them out of the jail and into a therapeutic setting. So that's kind of, it's been a lot of work and a lot of fun. very gratifying. <laughs>
0: And finally, Kent Spriggs, is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners?
1: I'll give you two. Uh, I'll give you three. Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine is just a stunningly amazing uh, work of political analysis that helps help me explain a lot of stuff that I see uh, so I would give that like an A+. Plus. I would give an A-plus to um, Beverly Daniel Tatum, Dr. Tatum's book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria. It was republished this year. It was originally done 20 years ago. It has to do with the acquisition of racial identity, both for black folks and for white. And last and definitely not least, the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, a truly stunning piece of work in which she uh, has uh, makes it an extraordinarily strong case that uh, the, there have been three paradigms of the black experiences in the United States. So the first is slavery, of course, then number two is Jim Crow, and the third is mass incarceration. Which, And, of course, the Democrats... <laughs> Got a lot of points along with the Republicans for uh, bringing that about.
0: Well, Kent Spriggs, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Kent Spriggs, a civil rights lawyer for over 50 years in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, is the editor of Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers. Reflections from the Deep South, 1964 to 1980. This book describes the fears, successes, and backgrounds of 26 young lawyers who put their lives on the line to end racial segregation. The three books Kent Spriggs recommends are The Shock Doctrine, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, and Other Conversations About Race by Beverly Daniel Tatum and The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander and Cornel West. This program was recorded on December fourth, 2017. There are over 630 archive editions on our website www.radiocurious.org. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is seven oh seven four six two six five four one. Christina Onnested is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.